Okay, well, uh, welcome everyone this evening. Uh, we're delighted to welcome back Keith Allen. Uh, I say welcome back because Keith did his PhD at UCL. Uh, he was a Yapperson Fellow at King's, housed in the Institute of Philosophy. So almost a complete set of London institutions, one, one or two to fill the portfolio. Uh, but since then, Keith took up a job at University of York, where he is now senior lecturer in philosophy and the deputy director of the Humanities Research Center there. Uh, Keith is probably best known for his work on perception and particularly perception of color. Today he's doing something rather different to that. As you can see, should we believe philosophical claims on testimony? So Keith, welcome. So thank you very much for the invitation and for coming along today. So, um, it's often claimed that we should not believe philosophical claims on testimony. So here's Locke saying, Aristotle was certainly a knowing man, but nobody ever thought him so because he blindly embraced and confidently vented the opinions of another. Such borrowed wealth, like fairy money, though it were gold in the hand from which he received it, will be but leaves and dust when it comes to use. <clears throat> so uh, here's a, another quotation from Thomas Reed. No philosophical opinion, however ancient, however generally received, ought to rest upon authority. So the question about whether we should accept philosophical claims on testimony is reminiscent of the large literature about whether we should accept aesthetic and moral claims on the basis of testimony. So in this literature, um, there are two main positions. So optimists say that we can legitimately form beliefs on the basis of testimony um, and often thereby come to know, whereas pessimists deny that. They want to say there's some sense in which testimonial-based belief is impermissible. Now, both optimism and pessimism come in a variety of different forms. So optimism is consistent with a kind of mitigated pessimism, um, according to which you might think that, in principle, uh, we can form legitimately form beliefs on the basis of testimony, but nonetheless might, there might be a range of propositions um, where testimonial-based belief is, is impermissible. Um, or similarly, you might think um, that at least contingently, um, there are reasons for thinking that it's not permissible to form beliefs on the basis of testimony in certain kinds of cases. For instance, if your interlocutors tend to be dishonest or unreliable. Pessimism, too, comes in different varieties. So <clears throat> I think the strongest form is the view that um, justified belief or knowledge is, strictly speaking, unavailable on the basis of testimony. Um, there's a slightly weaker uh, view according to which justified belief or knowledge um, is available, but it's unusable. Um, and this is because belief um, in a certain area requires uh, or relies on further norms in order to be usable. So I'll say something more about these views later. So although this kind of question about accepting on the basis of testimony has been widely discussed in the aesthetic and moral literature, um, the application to the philosophical case has been largely overlooked. Nevertheless, we can use this framework between the optimist and the pessimist um, for understanding a similar debate about philosophical testimony and whether we should accept philosophical claims on the basis of testimony. So broadly speaking, the optimist is going to say that um, it's legitimate to form philosophical beliefs on the basis of testimony. Um, whereas the pessimist is going to deny this. And again, um, these views can come in a variety of different forms depending on um, the type of optimism and pessimism in play. So I think the main aim that I have in this paper, which, as Joe said, is kind of not normally where I work, is a kind of just 
a, a kind of general aim to try to convince you that there's at least an interesting question here, right? That's to say there's at least an interesting question about whether and why we should or should not believe, um, sorry, we should or should not think that um, we can accept philosophical claims on the basis of tests and make right. So um, at the very least, I hope to pique your interest here. Um, but more specifically, what I'm going to do in the second, second, second section of the paper is argue for a form of pessimism, right? That's to say that we ought not accept philosophical claims on the basis of testimony. Um, in the third section of the paper, I consider a particular type of pessimism, unusability pessimism, and try to suggest that um, that type of form, that form of pessimism isn't convincing. Uh, in the fourth section of the paper, I consider kind of contingent pessimism um, that's related to, and relate this to kind of uh, the prevalence of philosophical disagreement. The fifth section of the paper tries to offer a diagnosis of why I think we ought not accept philosophical claims on the basis of testimony that seeks to draw a parallel between the philosophical and the aesthetic. Um, and then the sixth section of the paper kind of very tentatively suggests a kind of an explanation of why we ought not accept philosophical claims on the basis of testimony. And this is a view that I call philosophical fictionalism. Okay. So, <clears throat> Locke and Reed say that we ought not accept philosophical claims on the basis of testimony. Right. Clearly, if they're right, then we can't take their word for it. Um, it's a philosophical <laughs> claim that we ought not accept philosophical claims on the basis of testimony. And if that's true in general, then it's true in the particular case of the philosophical claim that we ought not accept philosophical claims on the basis of testimony. Right. So what reasons do Locke and Reed give us for thinking that we ought not accept philosophical claims on testimony? Well, in Locke's case, um, it follows from a kind of general scepticism about testimony that we ought not to accept philosophical claims on the basis of testimony. Um, this isn't, in some ways, a very interesting view because it doesn't uh, lead us to think that there's anything particularly problematic about philosophy per se. Right? This is just a general scepticism about testimony. Um, as such, it's also um, not especially convincing given the role that testimony plays in our epistemic lives. So I just want to, to set Locke's views aside with fairly short shrift. Reed's kind of more interesting because he's not generally sceptical um, about testimony and about believing things on the basis of testimony. Nevertheless, I think the reasons that he gives for thinking that we ought not to accept philosophical views on the basis of testimony aren't compelling. So having said that we ought not to um, accept any philosophical claim, no matter um, what the consensus or however ancient it is on the basis of authority, um, Reed goes on to explain there's no presupposition, uh, sorry, there's no presumption in requiring evidence for a philosophical claim or in regulating our belief by the evidence that we can find. Now, I don't think this is a particularly compelling reason for thinking um, that we should be sceptical about philosophical testimony. So, for one thing, it doesn't establish that there's anything peculiarly problematic about philosophical testimony. So Reed thinks, in general, that we've got a default entitlement to accept claims on the basis of testimony. Even if you think that, in general, we have a default entitlement to accept claims on the basis of testimony, that's consistent with thinking that there's no presumption in requiring evidence for a claim that you receive on testimony, um, and that when you do that, that you're thereby um, enabled to regulate your belief by the evidence you find. Right. So even if you accept Reed's general view about testimony, 
doesn't look as though this establishes anything peculiar about philosophical testimony. But that looks as though what he was trying to argue in the quotation I gave earlier. Moreover, I think this reason that Reed gives doesn't establish pessimism about philosophical testimony. So um, this is <coughs> so what he'd earlier said was that there's something impermissible about accepting philosophical claims <coughs> on the basis of testimony. Um, this seems to be consistent with thinking that it's permissible to ask further, um, but that it's not strictly speaking impermissible to accept on the basis of testimony. Okay, so Locke and Reed look as though they're articulating some kind of intuition that we have about whether or not we should accept philosophical claims on testimony. Um, but it's not clear that the reasons that they give um, in support of these intuitions are compelling. Nonetheless, I think there is something to the intuitions that they provide. So <clears throat> think in the first instance about what you might think of as kind of general philosophical claims or theorems or theories. So I think there's a, an interesting difference between the attitudes that we have to philosophical and non-philosophical claims. Right? So if a physicist tells you that black holes exist, then my sense is that you ought to believe them. Right? But what if a philosopher tells you something? So for instance, imagine that Lewis tells you that free will and determinism are compatible. Burge tells you that perception's representational. Or for that matter, Thomas Reed tells you that you ought not to believe philosophical claims on testimony. So my sense is that there's an important difference between these two types of case. In the first case, um, where an expert tells us something, we ought to believe them. In the second kind of case, um, it's less clear that we should. So what I think this kind of case suggests is that there's some kind of expecta expectation that when we believe philosophical claims, we believe on the basis of evidence. So this is a, a kind of an intuition, if you like, about um, philosophical claims, philosophical theorems, philosophical theories. These aren't the only kinds of propositions that philosophers are interested in. Um, but considering the other kinds of propositions that philosophers are interested in um, also gives us reason for thinking that there's something problematic about testimonial-based philosophical belief. So um, the second class of uh, propositions that are of interest are intuitions. So, for instance, the Gettier intuition that Smith doesn't know that the person who's got ten coins in his pocket uh, knows, uh, sorry, knows that the person who's got ten coins in his pocket is going to get the job. So... Intuitions, at least according to a standard picture of intuitions, are things that we're disposed to accept when they're presented. Right? They kind of function as, as, as evidence in philosophical theorising, so they're supposed to represent fixed points in philosophical debates. So it's important where intuitions are concerned that they get presented to you. Um, but at least according to standard views of what intuitions are, you accept them because they seem evident to you, not because they've been presented to you by someone else. Right? So in the case of intuitions, um, it looks as though you should accept these if you do, um, because they strike you as evidence, evident, not because someone else has told you. Um, you're not accepting them on the basis of someone else's say-so. The other class of propositions that philosophers are interested in are arguments. Right. I think, similarly, there's something problematic about believing on the basis of testimony, simply that there is a compelling argument for a particular claim. Right. Um, typically, in order to believe that an argument is compelling, the argument needs to be presented to you. But once the argument is presented to you, um, it's no longer functioning as kind of a simple form of testimony. Right? The presentation of the argument um, at least should put you in a, pre uh, a position to appreciate the argument. Okay, so I think there's grounds for pessimism 
um, where philosophical claims are concerned. Now, just a few qualifications. Um, I don't think that all philosophical claims are necessarily problematic. So claims about, for instance, who said what, what views, what theories people defend, what arguments they put forward may not be uh, problematic. Also unproblematic may be claims about theoretical commitments of particular views. Now, the kind of natural way of, uh, of carving out the relevant distinction here is to think of these kinds of cases as purely descriptive claims and contrast these with the valuative claims. So it may well be that it's, it's fine, permissible to accept uh, descriptive philosophical claims on testimony. Um, what's problematic are evaluative claims. Indeed, um, the cases where purely descriptive claims become problematic are those kinds of cases where it looks as though the descriptive and the evaluative are, are kind of entwined with each other. So, for instance, um, if you're trying to work out what someone says, as you might do in the history of philosophy, um, but in order to interpret their remarks, you need to think about what the philosophical, uh, philosophically most compelling interpretation is, right? So evaluations coming in. Similarly, if you're thinking about um, the commitments of a the theory, you might be interested in trying to identify the essential commitments of the theory, given the types of view, uh, motivations that are used um, to, uh, to motivate that theory. In which case... Um, you're starting again to, um, your descriptive claims are kind of based in part on evaluation. Um, the other thing to say is it's important um, as a pessimist to distinguish between the genesis of beliefs and their justification, right? So um, it's consistent with pessimism about philosophical testimony that we do, in a wide range of cases, um, in fact form beliefs on the basis of testimony, right? The key question is whether we ought to. Now, I'm not going to say anything in great detail here about what a philosophical claim is. So, I'm tempted by the idea that philosophical claims are going to be framework external claims in something like Carnap's sense, right? So, um, they're answers to external questions that ask about um, conceptual schemes, linguistic frameworks, whatever, however you want to put it, as a whole, um, rather than questions that can be asked internal, uh, asked and answered internal to a framework. Now, on this view, it follows that the very same words can be used to express um, both philosophical and non-philosophical propositions. So, for instance, the words humans or animals, um, understood kind of internal to a kind of biological framework, uh, might mean one thing, um, and it might be the kind of claim that you can uh, legitimately accept on basis of testimony. Um, but there's a different way of using those words to express a kind of framework external proposition, which is the kind of philosophical proposition, where it's not legitimate to believe that on the basis um, of testimony. Okay, so I don't want to rely on this way of uh, distinguishing between philosophical and non-philosophical claims, though. Um, Hopefully, at least, we can identify philosophical claims by example, um, and that kind of intuitive, uh, uh, intuitive understanding of what philosophical claim uh, is should be sufficient. Okay, so <clears throat> assuming that um, there is an expectation or a requirement that when we believe philosophical claims, we do so on the basis of evidence, how are we going to explain this? So the claim is reminiscent of what in debates about aesthetic and moral testimony have been called uh, the acquaintance principle. So there are different forms of the acquaintance principle, um, but the basic thought is that, um, in the case of aesthetics, for instance, in order to legitimately believe 
legitimately form an aesthetic belief, you need to be acquainted with the object of an aesthetic judgment and or grasp the grounds for the judgment. So the most prominent, I think, contemporary uh, proponent of pessimism in the aesthetic and moral case is Rob Hopkins. Um, so he argues for a form of unusability pessimism. Uh, he wants to say in the aesthetic and the moral case, um, testimonial belief um, and knowledge is available to someone. So knowledge can be available to someone on the basis of testimony, but nonetheless, um, that knowledge is unusable for them. Um, because the acquaintance principle, or something like the acquaintance principle, constitutes a further norm that governs the use of that belief. Okay, so it's a form of um, unusability pessimism. So if we transpose this to the philosophical case, um, the equivalent would be what you can think of as the philosophical acquaintance principle. And that's to say, in order to form a usable philosophical belief, um, you need to have some kind of acquaintance um, with or grasp of the grounds of that proposition. Right, so in other words, in order to um, form a usable philosophical belief, you need to be aware of some kind of argument for that claim, um, either an intuition or an argument. Okay, now, the problem for um, any form of unusability pessimism in general um, is to justify the claim that there are further norms governing belief um, in various areas, either in the aesthetic and moral case, um, in the kind of the standard debate, or in the philosophical case, um, in the case where we're interested in. Right. So if you assume in general that belief aims at truth, and the attitudes that we bear towards, say, aesthetic, moral, or as I'm considering philosophical propositions, if those attitudes are beliefs, right, then why suppose that we need any further norm here governing the use of these beliefs? So... Hopkins kind of provides an argument here that's um, uh, kind of, I want to say guilt by association, but actually it's a sort of partners in crime style of argument. So what Hopkins argues in the aesthetic case is that we have additional norms that are in force elsewhere. So um, in particular, additional norms govern, for instance, experts. Right. So um, the idea that there might be additional norms governing belief in the aesthetic and moral case isn't unprecedented. So Hopkins' thought is that um, where experts are concerned, testimony can make knowledge available to experts. Um, but it's illicit for experts to rely on this knowledge um, where the knowledge concerns their own area of expertise. Um, but despite this, it might be um, perfectly permissible for a non-expert to form beliefs in this kind of way. Now, as it happens, the example that Hopkins uses concerns philosophical expertise. So he thinks about a philosophical expert forming beliefs in the philosophical domain um, on the basis of testimony rather than thinking through things through for himself. Now, notice that this um, potentially undermines pessimism about philosophical testimony. Because if Hopkins is right, then it looks as though this is going to turn out to be a general point about expertise, and not anything to do with philosophy in particular, right? So the reason why we ought not to accept philosophical claims on the basis of testimony um, just follows from this kind of general thought about expertise. Okay, so is this convincing? Um, I want to suggest it isn't. So on the one hand, it's not generally true of experts 
um, that it's somehow uh, illicit for them to form beliefs on the basis of testimony, even in their own area of expertise. So as McKinnon argues, um, for instance, this isn't true of healthcare professionals who often, given workload demands, have to form beliefs on the basis of testimony, even if they're perfectly capable of going and figuring uh, the things out for themselves. It's also not clear to me that expertise is the particular problem in the philosophical case. Right, so think, for instance, about teaching students. One of the things we instill in our students is not to uncritically accept the views of others um, simply on the basis of testimony. Right? We try to instill in them the importance of thinking things through for themselves. Now, you might think in doing that, what we're trying to do is train future experts. But I think there's a kind of more general problem here. Um, and this is the thought that there seems something peculiar about the idea of a non-expert who goes around trying to form beliefs um, about philosophy on the basis of testimony without any kind of appreciation of the grounds of those beliefs. Right? There seems something peculiar about this thought. Um, part of this, I think, is that it just seems kind of counter to the spirit of the philosophical enterprise. Right? So someone who tries to just... Um, acquire true beliefs about philosophy on the basis of the say-so of experts, they seem to be missing the point. Okay, if this is the case and we can't explain um, why there's something potentially problematic about accepting philosophical claims on the basis of testimony um, due to anything uh, relating to expertise, then this just takes us back to the initial challenge for this kind of unusability pessimism. Um, which is this challenge about the aim of belief, right? So this is thought that if belief aims at truth and the attitudes that we form are beliefs, right, then why suppose that there is a further norm like the acquaintance principle that's operating in the case of um, philosophical discourse? Um, you'll notice the kind of the conditional nature of this statement here. I'll come back to uh, the antecedents of that conditional later on in the talk. Okay, so... <clears throat> It's possible to explain differences in the attitudes that we have to testimonial-based belief in different regions of discourse um, without thinking that there's any difficult uh, difference in principle between these regions of discourse. Um, if there's going to be some kind of contingent fact that's going to explain why um, particular regions of discourse are problematic as far as testimonial uh, belief is concerned. Right. So you might think there's no in-principle problem um, in a particular region of discourse uh, about accepting claims on the basis of testimony. But nonetheless, there are contingent facts which explain why we ought not form beliefs in those areas. So, for instance, um, it might be that interloc interlocutors um, are dishonest or unreliable. Now, <coughs> in the philosophical case, um, it's notable that there's widespread disagreement so for many, if not all, philosophical propositions, P, there's disagreement about P. So, for example, whether the mental is identical to the physical, whether good actions maximise utility, uh, whether and why we should or should not accept philosophical claims on, on the basis of testimony. Now, it's tempting to say that it goes without saying that there's widespread philosophical disagreement, um, but you can disagree about even this, right? So... Um, <laughs> You might think that um, philosophical disagreements aren't, in fact, genuine disagreements, or at least many of them aren't. So disagreement looks as though it requires one person to say assert P, another person to assert not P. Um, I mean, even that's up for grabs. Um, 
<coughs> we might think in the philosophical case that um, lots of apparent disagreements don't even uh, fit this model, right? Either the cases of people talking past each other, um, or you might have a kind of more complicated meta-theoretical, uh, meta-philosophical view, according to which philosophers don't even express propositions in the first place. Okay, so it might seem that this widespread disagreement in uh, in philosophical discourse is going to be explicit, uh, sufficient to explain pessimism, right? Why we shouldn't accept philosophical claims on the basis of testimony. So I think the key question here is whether the disagreement that we find in philosophy is consistent with um, a merely contingent pessimism or in fact whether it points to a, um, a kind of a darker, potentially darker uh, moral. So <clears throat> in the aesthetic case, Aaron Meskin um, defends uh, what you might think of as kind of mitigated contingent aesthetic pessimism. So Meskin uh, argues that much aesthetic testimony is unreliable. Um, and the reason for this is that the people um, who make aesthetic judgments often lack suitable sensibilities, suitable training, um, and in general they tend to confuse what they like and what is beautiful. Nonetheless, his is a contingent mitigated scepticism because he thinks that warranted aesthetic judgment is possible by people with suitable sensibilities and training, at least if you think about the judgments that they make within a particular genre, a particular aesthetic genre. So, can we use this as a model for thinking about philosophy and philosophical disagreements? Um, it's not clear that we can. So first of all, we get disagreement amongst those with training. We also get disagreement within genres, at least if genres are understood as kind of topic-based areas. So for instance, philosophy of mind, philosophy of perception, metaphysics, um, uh, aesthetics. Now, if we think of genres in terms of a kind of shared approach or a shared sensibility, then we're much more likely to get agreement between um, people with appropriate training, right? So, for instance, if we're thinking about, I don't know, kind of realists, pragmatists, if we're thinking of that as a kind of philosophical genre. Um, but if, they, if that is how we're thinking about philosophical genres, then I think this undermines the thought that the, um, that the kind of pessimism about uh, philosophical testimony is merely contingent. And this is something I'll come back to in a bit. So there's a more kind of general concern that I think is possible to have with the thought that, um, that we ought not to accept philosophical claims on the basis of testimony, but this is merely for contingent reasons. And this relates to the kind of character of philosophical disagreements in general. So many philosophical disagreements are intransigent in the sense that um, Mark discusses this, Mark Hardron discusses this in his fictionalism book. So a disagreement's intransigent when it meets two conditions, right? So parties to the disagreement maintain their views um, and there's no prospect of either side conceding defeat, right? This looks true in the, in the philosophical case, at least at the level of general theories, um, often at the, the level of specific claims as well. The second condition is that um, parties to dispute maintain their views, there's no prospect of conceding defeat, but moreover, that neither side is considered ir uh, irrational for maintaining their views um, <coughs> in the disagreement. Uh, that's say different views are rationally permissible given the evidence available. So again, 
Um, it looks as though this condition's met in the philosophical case. So um, we still engage people with whom we disagree philosophically in discussion. <coughs> we may well accept their papers, books for, um, for publication. Um, we may hire them as colleagues, as David Lewis points out. Okay, this is perhaps not um, generally true, right? Uh, it might well be that there are uh, areas of philosophy where uh, philosophical disagreements aren't intransigent. They don't meet these conditions, right? This might be true in formal areas of philosophy. Um, it might be true uh, regarding negative truths. So, for instance, that simple versions of theory are false um, or that particular claims can't be accepted. Nonetheless, I think it's widely true that uh, philosophical disagreements are intransigent. Okay, so noting the intransigence of philosophical disagreements is consistent with thinking that philosophy is truth-directed. Um, so Catherine Elgin uh, argues that persistent disagreements rationally permissible where evidence is equivalent, uh, equivocal. Um, and she thinks that there's an advantage for the epistemic community as a whole um, for people to continue to disagree in this kind of situation. Right? So the advantage for the community as a whole is that competing theories can be thoroughly developed and tested. Um, so in the philosophical case, Elgin wants to say that um, this may eventually lead to consensus um, if we allow um, persistent, uh, rational, if we rationally permit persistent disagreements in the philosophical case. Okay, so we can't rule this possibility out in advance. Nonetheless, we might be sceptical that philosophers are ever going to reach consensus. Um, so what I want to do in the uh, penultimate section is just kind of uh, offer an alternative, uh, uh, final two sections is offer an alternative explanation of what's going on here. Okay, so <clears throat> where moral, uh, aesthetic and moral disagreements are concerned, it's tempting to think that intransigent disagreements can be explained by um, differences in sensibility, where differences in sensibility are determined by things such as education, experience, social and historical context, fashion, values, and so on. So the thought would be that a similar kind of explanation of intransigent philosophical disagreements is also possible. That's to say, um, where philosophical disagreements are intransigent, this is also to be explained by what might be thought of as different philosophical sensibilities. Again, these could be determined in a similar way by education, experience, social historical context, fashion, values, so on. So, um, on this kind of way of thinking about philosophy, um, sensibilities are going to differ across time and place, right? So, think about the difference between um, Oxford philosophy in the 19th century and the 20th century um, with the shift from idealism to realism, or think about the different way in which realism manifests itself in Oxford um, to the more austere forms of realism that you find, for instance, in Cambridge. Or think again about the, um, the comparative, uh, the difference in the comparative interest in pragmatism in the US as opposed to the UK. So the thought that intransigent philosophical disagreements can be explained by differences in philosophical sensibility explains what you might think of as the kind of clumping together of philosophical views in time and place. Now, you might think at this point that um, this isn't really a reason to suppose that um, the philosophy, philosophical disagreements reflect differences in sensibility. You might just think that what we've got here is an example of different research programs or different research paradigms. 
um, where a research programme involves a common set of questions, presuppositions and methods. Um, right, so we don't need to appeal to sensibilities to explain why views tend to clump together in time and space. Um, or at any rate, to the extent that we do appeal to sensibilities, there's no fundamental difference here between, say, philosophy and science, where they also have research programmes. I think the key concern here is that it looks as though science leads to convergence and consensus in a way that you might be sceptical about whether philosophy does. One of the reasons for this is that um, there's no, or there's disagreement about the criteria by which we should evaluate philosophical theories. So standard criteria that people appeal to include internal consistency, simplicity, systematicity, fit with common sense, experience, intuition, or fit with scientific theory. But there are a number of different differences, uh, or there are a number of differences in the way that people understand these criteria. So people interpret them in different ways. Um, these criteria pull in different directions. So, assist, uh, so for instance, the theory that fits well with common sense may not fit well with scientific theory. Um, and even once you hold the interpretation of these criteria fixed, there are different ways of weighting them. So different, some people give more priority to some of these criteria over the others. Okay, so that's kind of one general explanation of why um, we're unlikely to expect convergence and consensus where philosophy is concerned. A kind of a, a deeper explanation, perhaps, is that the criteria that we use to judge philosophical theories either are, or at least form the supervenience basis for, aesthetic and moral judgments that we make about philosophical theories. So um, a famous example of this is Quine's objection to Possibilia. Uh, so Quine argues that Wyman's overpopulated universe is in many ways unlovely. It offends the aesthetic sense of us who have a taste for desert landscapes. Um, so another nice example of this is from Bertrand Russell. So this is in his intellectual autobiography where he's explaining his rejection of British idealism. And this passage um, is a nice combination of kind of aesthetic and moral judgments about philosophical theories. <clears throat> um, so Russell says, I felt in fact great liberation as if I'd escaped from a hothouse onto a windswept headland. I hated the stuffiness involved in supposing that space and time were only in my mind. I like the story heavens even better than the moral law, and here's a kind of almost moral judgment. I couldn't bear Kant's view that the one I liked best was only subjective figment. In the first exuberance of liberation, I became an idealist and rejoiced in the thought that grass is really green, um, in spite of the adverse opinions of all philosophers from Locke onwards. So there's kind of some perversity here, right? He's kind of enjoying the fact that he's disagreeing with all these eminent people. Um, and as time went on, my universe became less luxuriant. And so this is kind of Quine's taste for desert landscapes. Gradually, Occam's razor gave me a more clean-shaven picture of reality. So <clears throat> what I've wanted to try to do in this section is suggest that there's a kind of commonality or an underlying commonality to um, disagreements in the philosophical case and the aesthetic case. Right, so um, at the very least, disagreements in both areas tend to be intransigent, or often are intransigent. You might think that the explanation of this is that um, differences or the intransigent disagreements depend on different sensibilities that people have. Moreover, in at least some cases, you might think that philosophical disagreements just are moral, and moral or aesthetic disagreements. 
Um, and you might think that this is the kind of the basis why, insofar as the problem about aesthetic and moral testimony, there's also a problem about philosophical testimony, right? Um, in some cases, at least, philosophical disagreements just are aesthetic and moral disagreements. So whatever problems there will be about moral and aesthetic testimony will just transfer over. Okay, so <clears throat> a quick recap of, of what I've argued so far. In the second section of the paper, I argue uh, for pessimism about philosophical testimony, right? So we ought not accept philosophical claims on the basis of testimony. Section three um, argued against the unusability pessimist, right? So acquaintance with the grounds of a philosophical claim isn't an additional norm, uh, assuming that the attitudes that we bear towards philosophical propositions of beliefs um, and as such aim at truth. In the fourth section of the paper, um, I argue that if you think about the nature of philosophical disagreement, there's at least a tension with the thought um, that philosophical discourse is truth-directed. And so this is a kind of worry for the person who thinks that um, there's a kind of contingent pessimism about philosophical testimony is correct. Um, and then in the last section, I've just tried to suggest um, that uh, philosophical, intransigent philosophical disagreement uh, might reflect the, um, the fact that uh, judgment in, in philosophy is sensibility dependent. Okay, so the final very speculative section of the paper tries to give um, an account of why it is that we shouldn't accept philosophical claims on the basis of testimony. And it's a view that I call philosophical fictionalism. So according to the fictionalist, philosophical fictionalist, uh, the sentences of philosophical discourse are representational and so express propositions. Right, so when you're engaging in philosophical discourse, um, you're, you're actually expressing propositions. But nonetheless, it's inappropriate to uh, adopt truth-directed attitudes towards philosophical propositions, right, to the propositions that sentences of philosophical discourse express. So you might think that uh, the attitudes that we bear towards philosophical propositions are belief, um, if you think that belief isn't constitutively truth-directed. If you think that belief is constitutively truth-directed, um, then you might think that the attitudes that we bear towards philosophical propositions should be attitudes like accepting or entertaining, which aren't truth-directed. Now, I'm making this uh, philosophical fictionalism a kind of normative claim. So it's a claim about... Um, it, it's the claim that uh, we ought not to adopt truth-directed attitudes towards philosophical propositions. Um, so it's not a primarily descriptive claim that, as a matter of fact, we don't adopt truth-directed attitudes towards philosophical propositions. Um, although, note that I think that the descriptive claim isn't entirely implausible. So it's at least phenomenologically plausible in some cases that when we put forward philosophical theories, we don't put them forward um, in the status of kind of true beliefs or full beliefs, right? So um, <coughs> we might think that we merely accept our philosophical theories rather than fully believe them. I think it's also not entirely plausible to suppose that this is a, um, a descriptive claim when we think about um, our attitudes towards philosophical disagreement and the fact that um, we're prepared to allow um, for others to disagree with us. Nonetheless, it's merely the, the normative claim that I want to, to press here. So philosophical fictionalism, note, might, you might think it kind of presupposes that 
philosophical propositions are systematically false. Right? That's one way in which you can develop the fictionist view, but it's not the only view, way. Right? So you might think that philosophical propositions are undecidable, right? so that would be a form of agnosticism. Um, or you might think that they're just, in some sense, kind of truth indifferent. Right? They're not the kinds of things um, that are simply aiming at truth in the first place. Okay, so the final uh, thing that you need to, to accept if you're a fictionist is that even though uh, the sentences of discourse of representation also express propositions, um, but truth-directed attitudes are inappropriate, nonetheless the discourse is useful. Okay, so <clears throat> this philosophical fictionism provides us a way of explaining the kind of the puzzle about testimony. Uh, about philosophical testimony and why we ought not to accept philosophical claims on the basis of testimony. So the fictionist, philosophical fictionist, can, can say that the aim of philosophy, um, as Sellers has it, is to make sense of how things in the broader sense of the word hang together in the broader sense of the word. But this involves appreciating the reasons for the claims that we make in philosophy. Right? And appreciation isn't the kind of thing that can be transmitted via testimony. So that's the kind of one-upshot of the discussion in section three of the paper. Moreover, the upshot of section five of the paper, sections four and five, is that understanding or the sense that we make of how things fit together um, varies depending on our sensibility. And we can't guarantee that someone else's reasons for accepting a philosophical claim are reasons that we ourselves would share. Um, and this is why it's impermissible to believe or accept philosophical claims on the basis of testimony. Okay, so I've said that this is kind of philosophical fictionism. It's characteristic of fictionism that a kind of discourse is, if you like, good but not true. So what's the utility? Well, you might think, like Catherine Elgin, that um, philosophical discourse will eventually lead to knowledge in the epistemic community as a whole. Um, but you don't need to, to assume that that's going to be, uh, that possibility is going to be realised in order for, for philosophy to be valuable. Similarly, you might think that um, philosophy is instrumentally valuable. Right? For individuals, it cultivates various kinds of cognitive abilities, um, perhaps for society as a whole. It enables progress elsewhere. Right? So in Mothenusbaum's words, um, democracy needs the humanities, it needs philosophy. Um, or maybe philosophy gives rise to the sciences, right? So they're kind of instrumental values to philosophy. Or you might just think that philosophy can be intrinsically valuable, even if it isn't truth-directed. So the world's complex, and our experience of it and attitudes towards it raise a number of questions and problems, right? So um, we need to try to make sense of this. Um, and so even if philosophy isn't truth-directed, nonetheless, it satisfies satisfies the desire um, to make sense. Okay, given what I've said, it's very likely that there's going to be huge disagreement, um, <laughs> and I look forward to hearing why you reject my claims and the, <laughs> the grounds I've given for you uh, in the Q&A. <clears throat> So what we can do is take our